Good morning, Ephesus. Um, for just want to again welcome our visitors we have this morning. And for those of you that don't know me, I'm, my name is Russ uh, Jenkins. I'm one of the pastors here at Ephesus Church, and I'll be your preacher this morning. So, um, and for those of you that don't know, the way we normally like to do things is preach through a, a book of the Bible, a chapter, one verse at a time. So, currently we are in the book of First John. We're going through that as a church, and invite you to turn to chapter two. We'll be looking at verses three through six today. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. And I've uh, titled my sermon today, The Mark of a True Christian, Obeying Jesus and His Word. Our key words this morning, for any children that have the whip book, or adults, nothing wrong with an adult going through the whip book, um, are obey or obedience, commandments, love, and liar. Those are our key words for today. I want to start out by going back to uh, verse 2, um, or ch- verses 1 and 2 that Pastor Dave preached on last week. And he did a great job of pointing out, uh, talking about sin. And these uh, first verse talks about sin and how just bad sin is and how it permeates and affects uh, every part of us. But... And it it separates us from the Father. But we do have an advocate with the Father, and that's Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is a propitiation, or he's that sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the entire world, which means not for, in this context, uh, Jews only, but for people from all over the world. Jesus is the only Savior. So starting in verse 3, I'm going to read verses 3 through 6. I'm going to start in verse 1. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In these verses, the Apostle John is teaching us about the relationship between obedience and true Christianity. And unfortunately, I have to say true Christianity because we have a lot of people today that call themselves Christians. We have different sects. We have different cults that call ourselves Christians. But by the standard of the Word of God, we would not consider them Christians. So we see John teaching us about the relationship between obedience and true Christianity. Or in other words, he's calling us out whether whether our walk matches our talk simply put. And, and my alternate title for this sermon was, Who Are You Trying to Fool? Because that basically is what John is saying here. Who are you trying to fool? We can fool our friends. We can fool our family for whatever reasons, but we can never fool God. So who are we trying to fool? And I've kind of broken out these uh, four verses in, with four different thoughts or kind of an outline with four points. And uh, first, I'm going to run through the four right now real quick, and then we'll hit each one of them as we hit the verse. 
So the first uh, thing we're going to look at in verse 3 is the proof of fellowship with God or with Jesus comes by obedience. The second thing is the profession that is false is exposed by a lack of obedience. And you're going to see this word obedience as a central theme in these verses and in my outline. Uh, the third one, or C, is the perfection of love comes by obedience. And fourth and last is the picture of Christ is displayed by obedience. Now, one of the main messages of 1 John, and we've talked about that, is John gives us kind of three, three uh, things he talks about. He's, he gives us an ethical or a moral challenge as well as a theological and a devotional one. The theological challenge is mainly talking about doctrine, devotional or social challenges about our love for our fellow mankind. And, but we see to John these things are tied very tightly together. You can't really separate them. Um, this, is, this is a very challenging book. This is a book not for the weak of heart. Um, but at the same time, uh, he is urging Christians to grow in faith, in obedience, and in love. And John's theme throughout this book is redemptive. Um, redemption means to free someone from bondage. It often involves the pain of a ransom. It's a price that makes redemption possible. An example is the Israelites were redeemed from Egypt. And we, who are Christians, have been redeemed from the power of sin and the curse of the law through Jesus. And we were bought with a price. But, so it is redemptive in the sense that while we, we have been redeemed, Christians have been redeemed from the punishment of our sins, we are growing in freedom from sin by growing in obedience to Christ. We're moving away from bondage and sin and darkness and evil and are moving closer to the light as we've talked about in previous verses. So in this sense, First John is redemptive. Um, so we have, we've been shown that the source of our obedience, though, is the reality of Jesus and his work to dispel darkness and bring forth light. Pastor uh, Nick and Pastor Steve have talked about this. In fact, Pastor Steve showed us in the first few verses how, how much John emphasized the reality of what he's talking about. Uh, this is not a myth. It's not a legend as we see other places in Scripture. And John talks about he's, he's seen with his eyes He's heard with his ears. He's looked upon and touched with his hands concerning the word of life, concerning Jesus. So these are things he's experienced firsthand. That's what, that's what we're reading here today, a firsthand recollection of Jesus. And now it's our job to continue the work that Jesus began and that God's Spirit is enabling us to do. Now John's probably writing to a young church um, who needs a lot of guidance. They, they need a lot of guidance They've got some issues in the church. There's some people in the church with some evil or unbiblical agendas. In reality, these probably aren't Christians, which we'll be talking about today. They probably don't love Jesus. Um, they're, probably their main goal is for power. They want to lead others. They were calling themselves Christians, but they were teaching things that was in direct contradiction to Scripture. And they were leading others in that direction. I think this is probably one of the main things that compelled John to write this letter. So these people were saying that they loved God, but nothing in their beliefs or their actions even pointed to that. Have you ever stopped to think about that, um, what it means to say you're a Christian? Have you ever stopped to think about that, what it means to join a Christian church or what it means to be baptized? We, um, you know, we live in a, an area and a time where that's fairly common, but how should this affect 
your behavior on a daily basis? How should it affect your actions or the moral choices that you make? Can people tell by your actions that you're a Christian? And why do you even want to claim being a Christian? That's some of the things we're going to look at today. Um, So throughout this book, the Apostle John is giving us a basis for discernment. This word discernment is, uh, the definition is, an act or process of exhibiting keen insight and good judgment. So along with discernment comes the ability to make certain decisions. And that's kind of what John, one of the things John is talking about in this letter. One of the things we'll be talking about is assurance. Can we know who is a Christian? And if so, how do we know who is a Christian? And how do you or I as individuals make that decision or make that determination about our own spiritual situation. Now, there are times when we need to make decisions about who is and who isn't a Christian. We're not normally called to go around trying to determine that. But there are times where we need to try to determine that, or at least who is or isn't acting like one. For example, joining a church. You know, at that time, we want to try to determine who is a Christian. And there's other, you know, examples of that. But that is, that's one of the themes of this entire letter. But John tells us as much. Looking forward into chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why he wrote, one of the reasons he wrote the letter. John wants us to know that we can know that we are saved, that we can know that we have eternal life. Now, that, that was assurance. Another decision... Uh, that um, discernment helps us with is who should we be following as far as church leaders and teachers and what should we be taught? This has a direct bearing, this had a direct bearing on the original readers of John's letters and still does for us today. Who should we be following as far as church leaders and what should they be teaching us? Now, again, uh, the book is, has, of First John has three tests or challenges for the true Christian faith. And simplified they are, the theological test. And this, in this case, John's talking about Jesus is God and our Savior. Um, the second is the moral test. And that simply is, do you hate sin? Do you have a desire not to sin? And thirdly is a social test. Do you love and want to have relationships with other Christians? Do you love going to church to see your brothers and sisters? Do you love getting in small group settings? Do you love accountability and meeting with other Christians? And not just those you're already friends with or those who are just like you, but a bunch, different kinds of other Christians, different kinds of brothers and sisters. And today, But today, looking at these four verses, we're going to be focusing on the moral test. Do you hate sin? Do you have a desire not to sin? And I want you to kind of, I have two goals for everyone here in the sermon, two things I'd like you to think about as, uh, as we go through these verses. Number one is I'd like you to evaluate your own life in spiritual situation. I'd like you to think about your own life and how you live your life. Do you have assurance that you know God? And number two, uh, examine who you look to for spiritual and moral guidance and wisdom. Who do you look to for that? Do they pass these tests that we're going to talk about today? And this has some application. This has mainly application within the church, but also has some application to who you watch on TV or whose books do you read or whose websites do you go to. Um, are, are these, are they passing the, te- the moral test that John sets out in this book? So let's go ahead and start with verse 3. And it says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 
And again, the, the theme of this verse is the proof of fellowship comes by obedience. Now, he starts off by saying, and by this. So what's this this that he's talking about? Well, he's looking forward to the end of, of the verse. The this is if we keep his commandments. So it's, and by keeping his commandments, we know that we have come to know him. And notice that it's not by this we come to know him, or it's not by this we are saved. It's but by this we know that something has happened. So the obeying the commandments does not earn or gain any type of salvation, but it's just uh, the way we come to know that something has happened, that God has saved us. So the, this is keeping God's commandments. Uh, the sense here is, is not necessarily of an all of a sudden knowledge. It's not like God just zaps some knowledge into your head. But it's more that over time, by observing your own actions and observing actions of others um, and their desires, we come to recognize this fact. It's not an overnight, usually, type of thing. It's by observing the actions of yourself and observing the actions of others. But what is this fact? What do we know? And by this we know. What, what is that talking about? Well, it's the fact that we have come to know him. And we've got to realize this is not knowing about him or knowing of him, but we know him. This is not knowing certain doctrines about him, but this is talking about the knowledge of God himself. Um, there's a definition of this word know in Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology, and it's, it's a couple sentences, so hang in there with me. The definition of this word know. Biblically, to know God is not to know about him, but rather to enter into his saving actions. To know God is not to struggle philosophically with his eternal essence, but rather to recognize and accept his claims. It is not some mystical contemplation, but dutiful obedience. And that's the, what was happening kind of where John was writing to in the church. We had these, the Gnostics that we've spoken about, and they were teaching people that it's by mystical knowledge and a mystical understanding that you, that you become to know God. Um, and then the, the, the last definition in this uh, dictionary is that the opposite of knowledge is not ignorance, but rebellion. In the biblical sense of the word no. Let me read that again. The opposite of knowledge is not ignorance, but rebellion. So this is not an intellectual ascent, but a moral and spiritual knowledge. Um, the classic illustration of this is somebody comes to you and Ask if you know, I'm going to pick Michael Jordan, you know, greatest basketball player that ever lived. Um, if somebody ever asked you, do you know Michael Jordan? You know, your answer would be, yeah, sure, I know Michael Jordan. But chances are you don't know him. You just know about him. You know some things about him. You know of him, but you don't know him. So that's what John is talking about. He's talking about a knowledge of God that arises out of putting our faith in Jesus, and it's shown in our love for God. This is the personal relationship that we hear Christians talking about a lot personal relationship with God. This is what John's getting at, to know God. Now, Jesus said this himself in John 17, John chapter 17, verse 3. He says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So we know that we know God if we keep his commandments. And keeping is a pattern of life that is defined by an obedience to God's commandments which here most likely speaks of the Bible, God's will, the word of God. 
I want to show you three things about this idea of keeping um, God's commandments. Number one is that the keeping is habitual. It happens over and over. Now, this doesn't mean our keeping can or will be perfect. We, see, we saw that in verse 8, where John said, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This is not a perfect keeping of God's law, but it's a habitual keeping. And we're, we'll, uh, we won't attain sinless perfection here on earth, but the pattern or habit of our life is defined by an, a desire to obey God's word. The one who knows God, as a general rule, obeys him. Number two, the first one is it's habitual. Number two, this keeping is an expression of a love for God. Looking ahead to verse 5, we see that uh, the one who obeys God's word, in this person, uh, a love for God is perfected. God's will is that we should express our love to him chiefly by obeying his commandments. This is the main way we show that we love God. It's by obeying his commandments. And number three is that this keeping is joyous. Keeping brings joy. Obeying Jesus should be like a prized treasure that we delight in and get excited about. Keeping God's word is joyous because it springs from a love for God. Obedience to anyone that we love should bring joy and delight. So let's ask, a, let's uh, let's think about a few questions about this verse and to help to try to apply this verse. Um, I hope I hope you really take these questions to heart. Do you enjoy to be rebuked, corrected, or convicted? Think about that for a minute. Do you enjoy to be rebuked, corrected, or convicted? When someone comes up to you and says, hey, you know, um, I don't think you, you know, I think you're sinning in this way. I think maybe you ought to, you know, relook at your actions here. Do you like that? Well, you should if you want to obey God's commands. Keeping God... Um, if, you, if we love Jesus and want to grow closer to him, if we want to know him better, we should want to be corrected. We should want to know when we're not acting like Jesus. We should be thinking, what does God want versus what do I want? But in order to be freed up to do this, we have to know God first. Um, you need to know who he is. God is all-knowing. He's, you not only need to know him personally, but you need to know what God is like. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's a loving, kind, wise, and good God. And one of the things this teaches us is that we need to understand that God's commandments are in our best interest. God gives us commandments because he loves us, not because he's trying to punish us or be a cruel taskmaster. But he gives us commandments because he loves us and he wants the best for us. If you're a Christian, you have a relationship with God through Jesus, so you love him so you will obey him. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of lists this morning of what this looks like. First one here, I just, I just want to give us some tangible, practical examples of what, obeying, what loving God and obeying him looks like. The first one is we love others. I mean, Jesus summed up the entire law of God, and you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in this, Jesus is assuming that we love ourselves, that we take care of ourselves. So we need to be loving others. We need to be forgiving others. When others do us wrong or sin against us, we need to forgive them. And forgiveness looks like putting that in the past, putting it in the rearview mirror, and it gets smaller and smaller as we drive along. That's what forgiveness looks like and love for others. We should be confessing sin to God and others. When we sin against God, and we will, we need to confess that sin to God. 
And when you sin against someone else, you need to confess that to your brother or sister. We need to be patient with others. We need to uh, not be impatient with others. We, need, uh, we don't need to gossip about others. Um, and that's tied into thinking the best of others and not drawing bad conclusions. Giving others the benefit of the doubt and not gossiping and talking about it. When you hear gossip, don't repeat it. Just stop. That's, that's what obeying God's command looked like. Giving to others, giving time, giving your money, giving your gifts to others. That's what obeying God looks like. So true knowledge of God produces a heart that longs to and does obey God. I can't, can't emphasize that verse enough. True knowledge produces a heart that longs to and does obey God. Next verse is uh, verse 4 which says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The uh, title of this verse is, The profession that is false is exposed by a lack of obedience. Now, the claim here to know God refers to someone who is professing an intimate knowledge of Christ in an ongoing, enduring relationship. Really, this is just a claim that you're a Christian, nothing, nothing really more than that. You're claiming you're a Christian. This is the definition of a Christian, as we have seen. You, love, you have a love for God lived out by obedience to the commandments. But this person claims to know God, but contrary to what we have learned happens when someone loves God, this person does not keep his commandments. So what do we do with that? Well, the reality of this person's life is a habitual pattern of no real heart obedience to God's word. Not only is this person's statement a lie when he says this, but this verse tells us that they are a liar kind of by trade, so to speak. That's what they do. They lie. Their very character is defined by being a liar. They didn't just tell a lie once. They are living a lie. This is proven out because we are told also in this verse that the truth is not in him. The truth is not even there to come out because they're liars who lie. No matter what anyone says with their mouth, if there's not a life that is seeking in some way to grow in obedience to God's word, there is no proof of a relationship with God. Now, no matter what someone says about being a Christian, no one who has absolutely no desire to know God's word and obey it has any assurance that they are a Christian, according to these verses. Not only is there no assurance, but God's word challenges this statement that is not by, backed up by action, and he calls them a liar. I don't know about you, but that's not really a place I want to be, God calling me a liar. Now, we, have, we can see examples of this. There's extreme examples. I was uh, watching channel PBS the other night. Yes, I am a nerd. I watch PBS. Um, and there was a, uh, a documentary about Jim Jones, you know, the leaders, uh, leader of the People's Temple. Um, most of you may be aware of, of him and who he was. I mean, he was an extreme example. He claimed to know God. He claimed to be a Christian minister, but he was obviously not. He did not obey God's word. He was responsible for the death of over 900 people and was a liar. He's an, that is an extreme example of a liar. But the not-so-extreme example would be the person who... You know, you may know people that are well-versed in theology. They can talk about the Bible. They can talk about philosophy in the Bible. Uh, they may have a ton of scripture memorized. They may hold an orthodox or conservative creed. Maybe a member of a Christian church, of a conservative Christian church that believes the Bible. 
Uh, they may even be a deacon, may even be an elder, and may profess that they know God. But if this person does not heartily keep God's commandments, this verse calls him a liar. And, you know, we live in the Bible Belt. We live uh, in the South, which has a uh, history of um, uh, the Bible being taught, has a culture of the Bible. And I think we see this a lot. So this is where we really have to be careful, that we're not claiming to be a Christian just because our parents were or because it helps us in our community or because we go to church. You know, these are not, according to these verses, that's not what makes you a Christian. It's obedience to God's word that makes you a Christian. John Calvin said, although this is not uh, something that happens just here and now in our time, John Calvin said, no evil has been more common in all ages than vainly to profess God's name. So this is not a new phenomenon. It's something that's been going on for quite a while. I want to look at a few verses that just kind of uh, back this up and kind of match what we're talking about. Titus 1.16, uh, Paul writing to Titus says, talking about a group of people, he says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Again, their works deny. Now, if you want to leave your finger here in 1 John, turn over to Matthew chapter 7. We'll read a few verses. This is Jesus talking, verses 15 through 23 of Matthew chapter 7. Again, Jesus is warning his disciples of false prophets, the exact same thing that John is doing here in 1 John. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And this is their actions, what they do, how they live. Jesus says that's how we'll recognize them. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. He goes on to say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who does the will of my Father, the one who obeys my Father's commandments. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These workers of lawlessness were liars. Same kind of liar that John talks about. And one more uh, verse. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Colossians 3, verses 9 through 10. says, Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So the Christian has put on the new self. He has put off the old self. And the new self loves God and obeys God's commandments. Now an important point that needs to be made here is that these imposters or liars are not different types of Christians. These are not different types of Christians. These are not Christians that don't obey. Um, you'll, you'll have some people teaching things like this, but these are no Christians at all. John makes that clear here, that the proof of our fellowship or love of God comes by obedience, and the profession that is false is exposed by its disobedience. Moving on to verse 5, back in 1 John, 
says, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfective. By this we may know that we are in him. So the by this, instead of looking forward, is looking back to the but whoever keeps his word. That's how we know, again, that we are in, in him. John is emphasizing this point. And our, the, our outline here is that the perfection of love comes by obedience. Now, John says but at the beginning of this verse because this is in contrast. We just talked about the liar or the person who makes a false profession of faith in Jesus. That was who we just talked about, the liar. But now John says but in contrast to this person, um, in contrast to the liar, is this person. Here we see John using the phrase his word in the same sense that he uses his commandments back in verse 3 or 4. So he's not talking about He's talking about obedience to all of God's word. He's not just uh, any specific commandments here. This this let us know that he's talking about the entirety of God's word, obedience to his word. So John is speaking here of whoever continues to live by God's word, whoever strives faithfully to live in a way that pleases God, in this person, the love of God has been perfected. Um, Notice first that John throws added emphasis here by saying truly, the love of God is perfected. He, he says this because this is no liar. This is no fraud. This is no imposter that, like we just saw in the last verse. And the obedient person, truly the love of God is perfected. What does this mean that the love of God is perfected? Um, obviously, there's nothing wrong or nothing lacking in God's love toward us. God's love toward us is perfect. We know from 1 John 4:19 that we love because he first loved us. So God is the initiator in love. Um, that even our love for God is attributed ultimately to God's love for us. This word perfected means to fulfill its mission or reach its intended goal. Um, so when we obey God's word, God's love for us is accomplishing its ultimate goal. God has a goal for his love for us, and it's, it's to... Obey God's word. Um, Walking in obedience to God should be for the Christian the most satisfying, joyful, and fulfilling way we can live our lives. And this has the ultimate goal of glorifying God because that's what we were created to do, to glorify our creator. Now, from a practical standpoint, I think what having the love of God perfected means is that as we obey God, we grow more and more in our relationship to God. And the reason this is so is because through obedience we know God more and we see who he is more clearly when we obey him. I think this is one of the keys to the Christian life is that his attributes become not just something we read about but something we experience on a daily basis. When we obey God, we experience his goodness. We experience his grace and his mercy and his strength. And most importantly, when we, when we love God and obey him, we experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's how we experience that power is through obedience. And, and all these other attributes of God is how we experience um, God personally. Now, obedience is a means to an intimate relationship based on love. I mean, you parents can probably see this uh, in your relationship with your children. When your children obey you... Um, your relationship just grows. When, you can have, when you're not having to spank your kids all the time, you know, 
Um, and spanking's good, and we need to discipline our children. But when you have those times where your children are obeying you and you're having fun and you're building a relationship, those are the good times. Those are the times that you go back and look on. And so obedience is a, so their obedience is a means to your relationship with them. The same way that obeying God, obedience is not the end result. Obedience is a means to a relationship with God. So to truly love God is to keep his commandments. And this is no more than Moses taught us in the Old Testament. I, I love to see, read the New Testament and see where the New Testament writers, we can say, man, they probably got this from here. And if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, way back at the beginning of your Bible, verses 12 through 13, we, we can probably see that John is remembering this as he's writing. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, Moses says, And now, Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. He says that these commandments and statutes is, are being commanded to them for their good, for our good. So keeping God's commandments has always been the sign that God's people love him with all their heart and soul. And we keep God's word through faith in Jesus because of the love of God. That should be our ultimate goal as Christians. Now again, no one will ever keep God's commandments perfectly. And we have seen this is not what is meant by the phrase, the love of God is perfected. But to make progress in obedience to God, as we make progress in knowledge of God, should be the Christian's desire. And this obedience and obedience to God and knowledge of God, again, is very intimately entwined and related. Um, we see this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, which says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So as we walk with God and bear fruit, we are increasing in the knowledge of God. We are knowing him better. We're becoming more intimately related to God. And here in the end of verse 5, it repeats the message of verse 3, that knowing we are in Christ comes by obedience. Having that assurance of knowing God comes by obedience. This knowledge is developed and reinforced, again, not overnight. It usually doesn't happen overnight, but it happens moment by moment, day by day, as we go through our life, living our lives, uh, seeking to be obedient to God's word. We are more and more assured that we know God and we love God. And last verse this morning is verse 6. Verse 6 says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is uh, the theme for this verse is the picture of Christ is seen by obedience. The picture of Christ is seen by obedience. This uh, verse starts out by saying, um, whoever says he abides in him. This word abide, what does that mean? It means uh, continuing in or enduring in or lasting in. It's continuing to be in Christ. Um, and then it says, 
whoever says he abides in him ought. What does this word ought mean? You hear that a lot. It's, it's a stronger word than just must or should, but means that the person who makes this claim to know Jesus, this person who takes up the name of Christian, has a moral, spiritual, and logical obligation to walk in a certain way. But what kind of way? Let's look at that kind of way again. Um, the person who's in fellowship with God is compelled to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. Why? Because you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're going to walk with Christ. You can't be in Christ and not walk in Christ or with Christ. The he at the end of this verse is literally that one and refers to Jesus and his life on earth as a man who lived and who walked and who ate and he worshipped and he grieved. We saw him, we saw him cry and he fought temptation, just like we do, in the midst of a sinful humanity. Jesus was not sinful, but he lived surrounded by sinful humanity, just as each one of us must do. Now, Peter, John's good friend, his fellow disciple, worded it like this. In 1 Peter 2.21, he said, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So uh, just a little different twist on walking. Peter says you must follow in his steps, which means you must walk like him. But how can we walk like Jesus? We can't walk on water like he did. If anybody can do that, let me know. Um, we, can't, uh, we probably won't be called to fast in the desert for 40 days, probably. So this isn't talking about the miraculous things that he did, but we're to walk like he did morally. Um, that's what John's talking about. And let me give you some examples. We are to walk in devotion and reverence to God, the Father. We are to be devoted to God. We, God, we are to be reverent. We see any time Jesus interacts with God, the Father, he's reverent. He's devoted to him. This, this gives us a great picture of what our worship look, should look like. Our worship should be devoted to God, and it should be reverent to God the Father. Um, we see Jesus walking in his truthfulness and constant pursuit of righteousness. Jesus was always, he lived a life defined by truth. He wasn't a liar. He was truthful. That's how we should live our lives. We should be truthful with other people. We should not lie. We should not... Um, we should be pursuing righteousness, pursuing truth with all men. Um, Jesus walked in humility and self-sacrifice. We see this in his washing uh, his disciples' feet, an act that they, uh, they were no uh, upper echelon of Jewish cult- culture. They were your common, uh, average guys, and they wouldn't even wash. They didn't want to wash each other's feet. But Jesus, uh, God in the flesh, humbled himself and sacrificed himself to wash their feet. That's how we should be walking. Jesus, we see him walking through his love and his holiness. We should be pursuing that, love with others. His purity, he strove against sin daily, and he he succeeded, um, but that's what we should be striving to, striving against sin daily, uh, striving for Jesus' purity. His love, this is a good one, his love for the downcast and downtrodden. We see Jesus constantly having a love for the downcast and the downtrodden. He, he healed the woman at the well. He loved, and this is tied into his passion for evangelism. That's also walking like Jesus, having a passion for evangelism. Uh, Jesus loved, he was, he was all the time accused you know, of being with 
the sinners and the tax collectors? Because he, why was he with them? Not because he necessarily really just had fun with them, I don't think. Because he loved them and he wanted to share the gospel with them and he wanted to serve them. We also, walking like Jesus, also looks like suffering for his name and going through trials for the sake of Christ. Suffering, that's a huge theme of the Bible, is that we should be like Jesus by suffering like Jesus. Jesus was a servant. We've already seen that. Another way we can walk like Jesus is by knowing and using the Word of God. Jesus knew the Word of God. He studied the Word of God. Every time he was challenged, he used the Word of God to um, defend himself. So Jesus knew and used the Word of God. And lastly, uh, in my list, this is not a complete list, but prayer. Um, we need to walk like Jesus in our prayer life. Um, we have one account where Jesus prayed all night in the Bible. He, Jesus prayed all night. He prayed so passionately that it was like drops of blood, his sweat was. Um, how about us? How, how's, how's your prayer life compared to Jesus? How's my prayer life? It's pretty bad. Um, but I want to challenge us as a church that we need to take this seriously. We need to be a praying people. Um, we, we, as, as I'm a pastor now. I can challenge you, I guess, more so than I used to could. Um, you know, we had a prayer time set up a while back in the morning, and, uh, you know, it was pretty much um, just didn't last. But we need to be walking like Jesus in prayer. We need to be um, praying without ceasing. We need to be praying all the time like Jesus did. So in Jesus' character and his conduct, we have the perfect expression of not only the will of God, but in obedience to the word of God. And, and let me say something about this, about this uh, walking. Walking here implies that we're going somewhere, right? Normally when we walk, we're going somewhere. Even if we're walking for exercise, we have a goal in mind. When you drive to the store, you get out of your car, you're walking, you have a goal in mind. You're going to go inside and buy something. Our walking... The walking that John's talking about here implies going somewhere. Our Christian walk is a progression from one degree of glory to another, from one level of maturity and faithfulness to another. We should never be stagnant in our walk with God. We should never be still or stagnant. We should be walking um, in our faith. Hebrews 6.1 says, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. We should be moving on. Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul tells us to press on, walk on, keep going, obey. And so as we have learned to walk as Jesus did is the obligation of anyone who says he's a Christian and by this implication knows God the Father through Jesus Christ. And because we are united with Jesus, we should be like him. The Bible, the Bible is not an ethics textbook, per se. You, can't, you don't just open up the Bible and you, you're, not, you're faced with a situation and you don't, I don't know what to do. Let me, let me find that particular chapter in the Bible. It's not like that. It doesn't tell us what's right or wrong in every situation. It doesn't give us an exhaustive, exhaustive list of do's and don'ts, but it does give us Jesus as our ultimate example. And so if you've listened this far and you have a desire to be like Jesus, And what you need to do is open up a Bible and look at Jesus. Look how he lived. Look at what he taught and how he lived. Be like him because you love him, not because you want to earn his favor, not because you want somebody to see you in a good light, not because you want your family to get off your back, but but if you want to be like him, um, 
don't do it because you love him, not because you want to earn his favor, but because you can't do it. Um, you can't earn his favor. But when you look at Jesus' life and what he taught, and I'm almost done. Uh, this is wrapping it up. Let me warn you. Uh, be careful not to just do the easy stuff. I think we find Christians today, we, we, have good, we uh, do a good job doing the easy stuff. Don't just do the things you can manage that aren't too hard, that don't cause much of a sacrifice. Don't just do the things that you're already good at or that match your personality. Do the hard stuff. Uh, ask for the Holy Spirit's enabling help to forgive others, for example, really to forgive them. To stop gossiping and thinking unloving, vengeful thoughts of others. Um, stop lusting over the opposite sex. Stop being lazy and love your wife or husband by serving them. Take the 15 or 20 minutes every day or every other day or however to lead your family in a devotional time. To love and serve the poor like Jesus did by talking to them, by eating with them, by giving to them your time and possessions. Use your spiritual gifts to encourage and build up others, namely the church. And you know, Do the hard things because you love Jesus. Uh, let's be honest. A gossiping, unloving, vengeful, lustful, lazy, selfish person who claims to be like Jesus is just a liar. So that's what we learned today. Um, you can't be a Christian and not walk like Jesus. So... Uh, to in conclusion, if anyone here is struggling with assurance today and you're not sure where you stand spiritually, I hope that these verses have given you some direction and some clarity today. And uh, if you're not walking like Jesus, if you don't think you are, and you feel guilty because you aren't, let me urge you to place your trust in Jesus as the one who died for your sins and start walking like Jesus today. Because because walk like Jesus because you love him and because you really want to know him and keep his commandments. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us to gather here this morning to worship you, Lord, through prayer, to worship you through uh, the preaching of your word, through singing joyfully to you, to uh, giving of our offerings, giving of the things you've given us, Father. We are so thankful for that this morning. Lord, I pray for um, this message. I pray that it would not go out void. I pray, Lord, that you would use it to change hearts, that you would use it to give us a, uh, those of us that know you, to give us a newfound desire and passion to obey you, to obey your commandments, to love you through obeying your commandments, Father. I pray we would um, not see them as um, drudgery or not see them as things that we just have to get through, but we would uh, consider it a joy, Father, to obey your word and to love you in that way. So I pray, Lord, if there's any here that don't know you, that don't love you, that don't desire to obey your commandments, that you would open their hearts, that you would give them that desire, that you would turn um, hard, stony hearts into flesh this morning. God, we do ask for that. We, we love you this morning, Lord. We praise you for who you are. We, uh, we thank you for all the many good gifts you've given us. Lord, you are a good and wonderful God, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.